Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on our show, Michael Tolkien has some ideas about Tom Sawyer as a villain that we wanted to talk to him about. NPR critic John Powers is here to talk about Donald Trump, but not Donald Trump the politician, more Donald Trump the concept. And a few weeks ago, I had a fascinating conversation with NBA great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who has written a novel about Sherlock Holmes's brother, Mycroft Holmes. Joining me is my usual co-host. She is the fiction editor of LARB, Lori Weiner. Hello, Lori. Hi, Seth. Lori, Tom's not here today. We are doing the show a deux, as the French say. If you want to pretend that he's here, you can introduce him and I can imitate his voice. Do, uh, and joining Lori and me is uh, LARB founding editor Tom Lutz. Hello, Tom. I said. <laughs> Michael Tolkien is a screenwriter, a director, and a novelist, and he's come into the studios today. Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, Michael. I'm really pleased to be here. We're going to talk to you about Tom Sawyer. Why? One, one of, oh, I wanted to. Oh, yeah, it was, that was, it was yeah. your idea, idea, and I was, I was so happy to hear about it because it was one of my favorite books as a kid, one of the first books that really punched me in the nose when I read it. I was completely knocked out and remember so much of it so vividly, and what... Is it about the book that still speaks to you? All right. So we have to get a running start and go to the sequel to the book, which is Huckleberry Finn. Uh, Tom Sawyer was written in 1876. Huckleberry Finn was written in 1885. About 12 or 15 years ago, Roger Michel, the director of Changing Lanes, who I worked with on Changing Lanes, called me and said he wanted to do an adaptation of Huckleberry Finn. So we read the book very closely, and this was in the days when Paramount Pictures would do something like rent a 50-foot cabin cruiser for us, pick us up in Hannibal, Missouri, and take us down the Mississippi River for four days, ending up in Memphis and following the course of the book and reading the book aloud as we're going over the as we're going through the scene. And one of our creative quarrels was really over how much we would use Tom Sawyer in the in the movie and he felt that he really he did in fact he wanted to call the movie Huck and leave Tom out of it completely and just start with with um, Huck at the time when he's living with the widow Douglas not explaining that he's got a ten thousand dollar fortune because he and Tom found gold at the end of Tom Sawyer and um, and just take the story of the son of the town drunk who helps a slave run away and tell the story and focus on only only on the river and not go all the way down to the end of the book. Well, we'll just start with Tom at the beginning of, 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 of Huckleberry Finn. At the beginning of the book, Tom is, as he does in, in Tom Sawyer, can live only through mediating his life through adventure and through analogy. Everything has to be ambuscading the Arabs or being the pirates or being the robbers. He can never just be a boy playing a game uh, there's no sports it's all fantasy and it's some of it is some is dangerous so Huck so that's how the, the book begins and with with Tom trying to entreat Huck into into some games but Huck sees the mark of his father's shoe in the snow and realizes that his father's coming for him his father has put a claim on the on the money 
has an actual claim on the money and Huck runs away and Huck, is, Huck goes off with his father and has that great moment when his father goes into delirium treatments and Huck sits there with a, gu- a shotgun pointed at his father and the night lasts, I forget the line of it, oh, how long the night lasted, but he was r- absolutely ready to kill his father. And then he runs away, meets the runaway slave, goes down the river, uh, condemns himself to hell because he knows it's wrong to help a slave escape, but he builds a relationship with this with Jim, who's an older man, but still boy-like in 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 his own suffering, and who finds his own maturity over the course of the of the story. And at the end of the novel, Jim is captured, and he's locked in a in a in a cell as a runaway. Tom Sawyer shows up and says, we're going to help him escape. And they go through this really elaborate plan to help Jim escape. Someone is shot. Jim's almost killed. And then it turns out that Jim had been free for a long time, that, in fact, he didn't even have to run away anymore, that he'd been freed. But I think, I think uh, the widow Douglas had died, and, 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 and he'd, been, he'd been freed, and he was free to go and go join his family. So the, then Huckleberry Finn says, when he's, when he says, you know, when he's invited back up, up to, to Missouri, Huck says, no, I, 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 I'm letting after the territory ahead. I, I, I can't stand civilization. I've been there before. So the villain of the novel, the, one, the person who treats Jim the worst in the novel is, is Tom Sawyer because he knows he's free. As they go down the river, as people are looking at this boy and the, you know, the, this, this, the, the Jim and, and Huck, they play or they survive however they have to in order to get through. But nobody does anything as vicious and as evil as Tom. So, But in Tom Sawyer... Tom's boyishness is not an issue, and there's no villainy. It doesn't happen until Huck Finn. Well, that's that's what I thought, and then I reread the okay. book. So, um, what you see, what you get a, 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 out of Tom when, as you start reading the book, is he has no full blood relatives. He's an orphan. His aunt Polly talks about her dear, his dear dead mother, her sister, and that's the only reference you have to anything. He's got a half brother, Sid, and he's got a cousin, Mary, who's Aunt Polly's daughter. You never know what happened to his parents. It's a it's a mystery. Everybody else has parents except Tom and Huckleberry Finn. They're the only two people in the book, and Injun Joe, which is the uh, which is also the the the, the half breed Indian who is the uh, adventure villain of the book. As I was reading the book, I thought, I just started to see this pattern through the book where Tom is a bully, Tom is capricious, Tom runs out at night and sleeps in the woods. Uh, he's, Aunt, Polly has a, Aunt Polly has a very uh, loose grip on him because she can't control him because he's so wild. And she doesn't want to, but also he can o- o- overpower her emotionally. He knows all of her soft spots. Um, at the beginning of the book, he's in love with this girl, Amy Lawrence. And then he falls in love with Becky Thatcher. And the scene, let me see if I can see the scene when they kiss, because it's pretty amazing. And it's Twain slipping things through that you don't. All right, so she says, kiss? What do you kiss for? And he says, why, that, you know, is to, well, they always do that. Everybody, she says, why, yes, everybody, that's in love with each other. Do you remember what I wrote on the slate? And she says, yes. Well, what was it? She says, I shan't tell you. Shall I tell you? Yes, she says, but some other time. No, now. No, not now. Tomorrow. Oh, come, no, no, now. Please, Becky, I'll whisper it. I'll whisper it ever so easy. Becky hesitating, Tom took silence for consent and passed his arm about her waist and whispered the tale ever so softly with his mouth close to her ear. And then he added, now you whisper it to me just the same. 
She resisted for a while and then said, You turn your face away so you can't see, and then I will. But you mustn't ever tell anybody, will you, Tom? Now you won't, will you? No, indeed, indeed I won't. Now, Becky, he turned his face away. She bent timidly till her breath stirred his curls and whispered, I love you. Tom Sawyer is a rapist. <laughs> He's a 12-year-old boy looking, but, <laughs> no, but I... his, her breath moves his curls. That's, that's like, nice. uh, you know, yeah. uh, that's, ev- I mean, that's, you know, you just, uh, he is, our, there is no better prose, he is American English. There's nothing in this book, there's not a sentence in this book which reads out of place from something you, anybody could write today. The structure, the vocabulary, the, the analogies, the sense of humor, it's, it was, no one had done it before, and we've all done it since. So... Um, let me ask you one yes. thing. Um, so do you think that, I, I know that Twain said that Tom Sawyer was based on three people, one of which was himself in his own boyhood. I, I remember reading that. But um, do you think that he he came to kind of judge Tom in Huck Finn? Or do you think he was judging him in Tom Sawyer? Or just, because Tom's, Tom and Tom Sawyer is a, is a very lovable boy, even yeah. though he, okay. Go ahead. He's lovable, but he's lovable <laughs> because he's the rapscallion who gets away with stuff and because he's so full of vitality. We love him because he's so vital, because he's so energetic, and because he's free. But here's the introduction of Jim, who becomes the you know, the star of Huckleberry Finn. Tom did play hooky. He was, you know, he's, he's ran away. He, okay, Tom did play hooky, and he had a very good time. He got back home or barely in season to help Jim, the small colored boy, saw next day's wood and split the kindlings before supper. So that's the job that's supposed to be done. And Tom is supposed to help Jim. At least he was there in time to tell his adventures to Jim while Jim did three-fourths of the work. So mm-hmm. Twain never uses the word slave, mm-hmm. but this is a slave, right. and Tom is supposed to help him. He's not supposed to let the slave do all the work, and Tom lets the slave do all right. the work. But, of course, the book starts with Tom getting the other white boys to do his whitewashing of the fence for him. It's not necessarily—I mean, he takes advantage of everyone. Well, I don't know. I think, I think Twain, Twain had a, an expansive vision. He understood the wish, fulf- the, the, the wish fulfillment of a, a character who's completely anarchic, but he's also aware that he's, you know, 1876, he knows that there were slaves. He doesn't know how to deal with it yet, you know, and so he leaves it out except in very, in a few really coded places to protect the slaves from being mocked. It's not a minstrel show, you know. Jim is more of a min- there are, there are there are passages in Huckleberry Finn with between Tom and, and Huck which are Abbott and Costello. I mean it's minstrel minstrel humor, you know. And it's just uh, it's and you could say maybe it goes a little bit too far, but then other moments of, you know, lyricism. Well, I ne- I never realized that the reason I love Tom Sawyer was because he's a sociopath. He is a sociopath. Yeah, that's why you identified with him so much. Yeah. On some yeah. level. Yeah. That's why we all love him. He's the screaming id. All right, Michael Tolkien, thanks for coming on the LARB Radio Hour. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, it's really Michael. fun to be able to talk about this book. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 KPFK 
FM. We're recording on Tuesday, February 2nd, Groundhog Day. The Iowa caucuses were yesterday, and uh, Donald Trump finished second. And before we dive in and talk about what this means, where Trump comes from as a as an American figure, let's uh, meet our guest, John Powers. You know him from NPR and Vogue, has kindly consented to come in. Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, John. Hi. Hi, John. Hi, Laura. So nice to have you. My pleasure. So, John, did you think Trump would win in Iowa? Um, I wasn't sure. Um, I'm from Iowa. And so, what? Yes, I'm from Iowa. So there was part of me that h- hoped he wouldn't and thought that maybe he wouldn't because Iowans are sensible even when they're ideologically nuts. For writing purposes, I'd kind of hoped he would. I mean, I, which I think is actually the way many people in the media feel and which is part of the reason for his rise. Everyone thought he's the big juicy story. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to watch him every time that he was on a debate. And uh, and I wanted to watch the Republican debates more than I wanted to watch the Democratic debates because there is this element of what the hell is he going to say and do next? And it is extremely entertaining. And the ratings reflected that. Now, the Daily News ran a headline this morning, and the headline said, Dead Clown Walking. And it was a picture of Trump with with clown makeup. And it reminded me of how people in New York in the 1980s apprehended Trump when he first appeared on the scene. Trump was a clown. He was a buffoon. He was some kind of excrescence of the Reagan era, very much uh, reflecting of the times and, and a joke figure. And John, what was the transitional moment, do you think, when he went from being a joke to uh, a potential American dictator? I don't know what that moment was. I mean, there, was a, there were these various cultural moments along the way when things that in the Reagan years seemed excessive suddenly got folded into the fabric of American life so that things like hip-hop culture probably helped Donald Trump. Because Interesting. Say more. He, he, you know, the most boastful, blingy millionaire, in fact, is part of mainstream pop culture. And it's actually given an aura of cool. So that, that would be one and, thing. And I think that also that we're so tired of hearing politicians say, you know, my father was a coal miner, and they do it every election year, and it just gets to be ridiculous. And I think he was refreshing in that context. Situate Trump for us in, in American history. Oh, that's almost impossible for me to do. I mean, do you have any ideas? Well... So happens. Funny you should ask. I've been thinking a lot about Trump lately. I'm a little obsessed with him, actually. And and I feel like Trump reflects a duality that emerged in the 19th century, by which I mean the advent of Jacksonian democracy when the Vox Populi ascended and and the common man literally gained access to the White House and the tradition of the robber barons in the later part of the century, where unbridled wealth first appeared on the American scene and and took off as, as something that the average American looked at and wanted to emulate. And what has been fascinating to me about Trump is the twinning of these two deeply American strains in what feels like a very original way that we, we have not seen before. No, I think that's actually true. Um, you know, there's, you know, usually working class people might envy rich people, but they they wouldn't vote for them because they, they would know firsthand not to trust them. 
I mean, what they wouldn't believe, you know, can you imagine people saying, yes, I would like John D. Rockefeller to be president because the one thing I know is that he'll be good for me. You know, they just wouldn't think that. Whereas, whereas here they do. So, so somehow he's managed to bring the, bring those strands together. Why, where has the resentment gone? How has he been able to do that? Why, why is he not resented, Lori? I do take issue with your talking about his originality because although <clears throat> it does seem um, like a burst of some kind of fresh energy in in politics, it's hard for me to call him original because he's so such a such a stock schoolyard bully braggart. But the reason I do feel no guilt about enjoying Donald Trump is because, as a lot of editorial writers have pointed out, he is what the Republican brand has been building come home to roost. And they deserve that. They try to make subtextual and dog whistling all of their references about um, minorities, which who are fast becoming non-minorities and the poor. And because he's so on the table with all of that stuff, I feel like it's good. And it's good to get it out there to, to, because now we see what they're really talking about. And of course, that's why the Republican establishment hates him so much for that and because he's not in anyone's pocket particularly. But in the American story, John, in, in the world of archetypes, take It's a Wonderful Life, for example. Look at how people take in the character of Lionel Barrymore, the banker. He's, he's reviled. In many ways, he is the archetypal 20th century villain. Now, Trump seems to have turned that on its head. And I guess my question is, how has he engineered that? Because it's such remarkable jujitsu, completely unpredictable. You know, not, but he, he's not, I'm sorry, John, you are a guest. And I will let you talk oh, in a second. Free, feel free <laughs> no, to interrupt. But please. I just want to say he, he's not like Lionel Barrymore because Lionel Barrymore was joyless and dry as dust. And Donald Trump really enjoys himself and is having a great time. And there's, that's a You're right. But what you're really talking about is icing. And what I'm talking about is are the, the fundamental underpinnings of the characters. And I guess what you're saying is the icing has become way more important and people have completely lost the ability or the instinct to diagnose what's going on underneath. John, yes. would you agree uh, with that? Can I offer two strands that suggest what have, what has helped him. And it's not stuff he's done in particular. The first is we have had this period of 30 years where businessmen have been treated as gods. So Steve Jobs would be an example of that. You know, the, Jack Welch, all those people had their, Lee Iacocca, they all had their best-selling books. So people were reading and being trained to identify with these people as larger-than-life heroic figures. On the other hand, you have the normalization of stuff that Trump does. I, mean, I mentioned hip-hop earlier. Reality TV is clearly one of those. He has entered everybody's home for years and years and years, giving this show as the blowhard kind of guy, which made that seem normal. Why are people like us feeling so nervous? Um, it, feels, it feels a little real. If I had to bet, I would bet it will recede. In the way that in the past these things have t have tended to recede, he you know he might be the explosion of something. It's the flowering of something, but but it doesn't stay. He could be the lancing of the boil. Yes, you know, I mean, and that's why in, in so many ways, you know, someone like Rubio is more frightening because if you look what he actually believes, he is as conservative as Ted Cruz. Okay, he's probably he may be more ambitious, although he's slightly better at hiding it. But he has table manners. He's table manners, yeah, and 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 he's what less smart. You know, I mean, Ted Cruz, what's impressive about him is 
given the fact that he's starting off with being one of the most unlikable guys since Nixon, how disciplined he is, mm-hmm. how his jokes aren't good. His jokes are terrible. No, but no, his jokes aren't good, but they are clearly an attempt to make jokes. The fact that he that he's able to like take all that stuff from Trump and never he got thrown off a little bit, but never lo- but never lost it in a way. He won he he beat Trump. Well the way he pivoted when Trump attacked him on 9-11 was remarkable. Trump was trashing him and Cruz was applauding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he really he literally he was applauded. actually applauding. Yes, but it, but in terms of also of the narrative of idiocracy, um, you know, when, when Reagan was running, we are all old enough to remember that it seemed like this this is a joke. This actor this actor who's memorizing his lines, who's confusing reality with movies, this cannot possibly happen. And it happened. And now Reagan really does seem to use my go-to phrase like George Bernard Shaw compared to to Trump. Reagan and- seems Churchillian in that context. <laughs> All right, John Powers, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks, John. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 KPFK-FM. A few weeks ago, the NBA great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was appearing at Chevalier's Bookstore in Larchmont Village. Why was he appearing at a bookstore? Because he's written a book. Actually, he's written 10 books. His most recent one is called Mycroft. It is a novel about Sherlock Holmes's brother. And I met him right before he went on, talked to him. We had a terrific conversation and let's listen to it now. How did you become interested in Sherlock Holmes? Um, I first was interested in Sherlock Holmes when I was a kid. I would watch uh, Sherlock Holmes theater on Saturdays Growing up in New York, uh, Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, um, me and my friends, we would watch it on Saturdays. And we always thought he was remarkable. <laughs> and when did you become aware of Mycroft, his, his brother, who we should say your book is called Mycroft and it's about the brother? I became aware of Mycroft when I read um, the real stories uh, mm-hmm. by Arthur Conan Doyle. I got. I was given a compilation of all of his stories, and I took it with me on my very first NBA road trip, and started reading it. And uh, you know, that really got me hooked on uh, crime fiction, and in you know reading um, all the early books, uh, I saw his name there, but he he wasn't very well defined. And then there was another book uh, that came out in the 1980s called uh, Enter the Lion, which is about Mycroft. And a totally different uh, perspective on who he was. But I was curious that you chose Mycroft to tell a story about rather than Watson, who of course would be the most obvious choice, or, or Professor Moriarty, who would be a completely perverse choice to write a book about. Why, why Mycroft? I picked Mycroft because Mycroft had so much, uh, of, there was so much potential uh, in telling his story. Here we have someone that no one really is aware of, and uh, Doyle says at certain times he was the British government. <laughs> British government, the, the Great Britain in the 19th century was a world superpower. So here you have Mycroft Holmes uh, at the reins of power, and nobody really knows who he is. He's some obscure uh, bureaucrat in the foreign office. So you, you could color within the lines the, this, this vague outline that Doyle had drawn. Right, yeah, it gave us a, a great amount of space uh, to take the story and to uh, deal with him. 
on all of all of his issues. At, at Doyle describes him at the end of his, at, you know, in, in middle age, he's reclusive. He's his health isn't that good. He doesn't do very much. He goes to his office, to his club, and to his apartment. That's it. And uh, yet he has the ability to help uh, Sherlock uh, when Sherlock is in a pinch and, and needs things done. So uh, you know there was a, lo a lot there to work with. So you made a really bold choice because you set a lot of the action in Trinidad. Yeah. which is uh, a ballsy thing to do, given that it's a Sherlock Holmes novel. And we associate Holmes, of course, with 19th century England and very much you know, London and fog and that kind of thing. And I would imagine you could probably recreate 19th century London in your sleep, but how did you do the research to recreate what Trinidad was like in the Victorian period? Well, my family's from Trinidad. I did not know that. Right. So my grandfather immigrated to the U.S. in 1917. So that, that was really our history. When uh, my grandfather uh, came to America, he had to go register as a, as a, as a foreign national because uh, they were drafting people to go fight in World War I. And uh, he had just arrived in the country and he had to go straighten that out. And did you know a lot of the Trinidadian uh, information already or did you have to go down there and dig in? Or? The, the, my grandmother, when I was a little boy, uh, she would tell us stories and uh, that, that's really how I absorbed my culture. And, and asking questions and uh, figuring out what it was all about. My, my grandfather was a constable, a police officer, so he traveled all over the, the uh, Caribbean picking up and delivering prisoners, and he, he got tired of that. He decided he took my grandmother and said, we're going to America. So that's how my family got here. And when you wrote this book, you've, you've written a bunch of books, ten, nine, ten books, how many books have you written? Yes, uh, ten. All, all nonfiction. Making the leap from nonfiction to fiction is a, it's a pretty significant jump. And what was, what was that like? What were you were you scared of it? Did you just jump in intuitively? How'd that work for you? It's it's interesting. If you write nonfiction, people will just check you on the facts and then determine whether or not they're correct, and they'll leave you alone. If you write some fiction and it's no good, you're going to hear about it. <laughs> and I'll tell you on Amazon, I think. It's, it's scary. I've noticed yeah. that. Right. So uh, it, it's a scary thing for um, an author to do to, to make that attempt. And uh, that's why I never tried it before. Because, uh, you know, it, it takes more time uh, to fashion a story uh, to, to tell to everyone. Thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Who was the toughest guy to guard you ever? Last question. <laughs> the toughest person to guard me. Was, I it, was it Willis Reed? No, no, uh, Nate Thurman. Nate Thurman. Very good defense. That was my conversation with NBA great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, which we taped backstage at Chevalier's Bookstore in Larchmont Village. Thanks to John Powers. Thanks to Michael Tolkien. Thanks to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Thanks to our producer and moral conscience, Jerry Gorin. Our crack production assistant, Ernesto Uraliano. Our new czarina of scheduling, Natalie. Natalie, I don't know your last name. What is your last name? Natalie Chudnovsky. Did I say that right? Apparently I did. We couldn't do this show without the generosity of the Gold Hirsch Foundation, and we thank them every week. Find us on the web at www.lareviewofbooks.org. Download us on iTunes. For Tom Lutz, who is not here this week, although we still esteem him. It's here in spirit. And Lori Weiner. This is Seth Greenland. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week. Thank you.